Hello, my name's Mark Ferguson and this is the 17th episode of the Radio Loop podcast. Today we're joined by photographer, website maker, sea swimmer, Claire's doing the miming, the swimming boy, sea, sea swimmer, and generally super nice guy, Kevin Meredith. What have you been doing this week, Claire? Um, I've been in and out of the studio quite a lot. I've been up at Sussex University a lot this week, actually. It's, been, it's getting towards the end of term, so we're on week 10 of 12, so there's quite a lot of assessments going on, um, which is quite nice to see what the students are up to. They're stressing hugely, bless them. Um, but yeah, so that's been most of the week. Trying to get a couple of projects going that I'm literally kicking and screaming into just getting into the final stages of right now let's start the actual work and stop talking about it but that's the eternal frustration um and some planning for 2019 actually yeah we were talking about that earlier weren't we, we were. very interesting a, a very insightful conversation over my exciting lunch of spinach and vegetable balls <laughs> <laughs> so that was it how about you me um i've been doing um some naming so naming um buildings on a property development naming options been quite busy it's quite a nice nice thing to to work on I like playing around with words and ideas and how they link to each other so yeah that's this week and I was very honoured to see them and to have a little discussion with you about that yeah so. you helped me edit it, edit it yeah. down a bit didn't you Kev um, this week I started the week off having a nice meeting with you yeah. about said development um, I I do like personal work. I was photographing the starlings. Didn't capture anything good. But that's what happens with nature sometimes. So today, today was quite a nice day, wasn't it? The weather. Yes. So you went down at what time this morning? I no, that's was, you've changed the subject. To Sorry. Sorry. Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> so I this morning I went extra early because I, so I'm a member of Brighton Swimming Club and I swim in the cold water of the sea throughout the year for the past 15 years. But this morning I was meeting a student documentary filmmaker because she was photographing, uh, not photographing, filming the uh, Bright Swim Club. So I, I said, like, we'll meet you at seven, then you can sort of film while the sun's coming up. And then 7.45, my little group comes and then you can film us swimming. So her name's Inca Creswell. Um, and she did, it's quite very interesting. She'll look her up on Instagram. But she did, uh, she did a degree in biology, marine biology. And then she's been marine biology in it up. And now she's, I can't remember what courses she's doing, but it's a course that's very closely linked with the BBC. So she's now doing natural history filmmaking. Right. So, yeah, and then she had her dad there. And so she was filming from the land. And it's quite funny, her dad, uh, Luke Creswell, he was, he put on a dry suit and he was just like in the break with us taking, uh, filming from there. Um, so, yeah, she had a quite a good assistant because he's actually made IMAX natural history films. So Whoa, well. yeah. okay. So. So oh, she didn't. Fantastic. She didn't go in the water, but she made. Uh, she her made her dad, dad do it, yeah. even though she's a properly rated diver. So yeah, that was this morning, and then I went for my swim, and I went to my office, did my office bits. Um, then I had to sort of attempt to repair a shower at the swimming club because I'm on the I'm on the um, do the maintenance at the swimming club. Then I shot the starlings, and then I hightailed it up here. That's why I was about five <laughs> minutes late. So sorry about that. It's all right. Just, but there weren't that many starlings. 
there was that many stylings. The trouble is at the beginning of the styling season, they kind of come to Brighton in about October and it's very hit and miss. Sometimes you can have a fantastic evening because the things have, right, elements have to come together for it to be good. So uh, obviously, you know, if it's really grey and overcast, that can't be good, although sometimes you can work with that. Although, not last night, but the night before, it was very grey and overcast. And it's like clockwork. As soon as the sun goes down, about 10 minutes later, they all kind of flutter under the pier and go to bed. But on Wednesday, it was really overcast. I came out of my office, which is on the old steam. So I just looked down the road and I can see the helter skelter on the pier. And sometimes you can see the, the, the starlings murmurate already. And there was just this huge cloud, like one that we haven't seen this year, just really, and because it was really windy, they kind of move around in this kind of like morphing, squidging shape. And it was incredible. By the time I crossed the main road, they'd stopped. And it was 20 minutes early. I was like, oh. So now I know if it's overcast, I need to get there a bit earlier. And then the day before that, it was really rainy and they just weren't there. They don't like rain. So this week I did not capture any nice styling pictures, I think. So, yeah. so, you, so as well as kind of going out there to take the nice photos, you're actually starting to understand the, the, the habits and the, oh, yeah. the lifestyles of these. I mean, bizarrely, although I've been in that office for, for about six, well, I've been in that office for about seven years now. I've only, I think I've only actually been shooting the, the starlings like sort of religiously for about three, this might be my third year, I think. So not, um, stupidly, yeah, I hadn't done it before now, so. But yeah, I am getting to know them. And in fact, when the water's calm, I'll put on a wetsuit and I'll go swimming underneath them. And that's, I've done that a couple of times so far this year. That's pretty incredible. Yeah, that's brilliant. Mm. Wow. I, I think they're insane. Everybody used to moan about the starlings in Brighton back in the day when I was a kid, like bloody starlings. Well, I... And they're on like the RSP red, RSPB red list or something. Yeah, like well, apparently I've... Oh, I think they say their numbers have declined massively, um in the past kind of 30 years and interesting enough when I was I had this you know how sometimes you like you get something you think, oh, I'll post that to social media when the time's right so I, in my archive I found a picture of a Argos A board is that what they called it? <laughs> yeah. yeah which said uh, Brighton plagued by starlings which was from 2009 and then before I posted it I just went to look at the actual article and it was basically about people's gardens apparently there was a rogue group of a thousand starlings <laughs> back in 2009 they were just covering um, the gardens like there was photographs of just gardens covered in shit like literally just covered in shit and and um, are we allowed to swear on this? Yeah. Too late now. Yeah, no, but yes, yes, we are. It should That's be fine. my, okay. it should be my role to swear, and then he puts the disclaimer at the beginning. Yeah. And there's a swear. And all, all I need to do is mark down if there's a swear word, and then uh, people at home don't really need to know this, but yeah, um, <laughs> I mark down there's a swear word, and it says it's explicit, so people know. So that's fine. Just speak as you would normally. Well, yeah. yeah. I think I think because um, I'm a big fan of podcasts, and I there's there's a few podcasts, and sometimes if you beep out swearing, it kind of makes it more funny. Anyway, <laughs> I'm not. I can't be asked doing that. <laughs> Uh, so yeah so the garden's covered in excrement <laughs> and yeah which obviously would really annoy you if you live there but then interesting enough when I googled for that story because obviously I googled like starling you know menace Brian and then I found another story from 2012 that said you know Brian starling numbers are dwindling but I think it was just an unlucky year where they, these people, they had like a load of ivy in, in, up against this wall, so they're all roosting in there. So if I assume they took that down, they didn't get the problem next year. Yeah, more than likely. But, um, yes, yeah, so... It's like in 1977, I think, there was a rogue cloud of ladybirds 
in Brighton. It might have been slightly earlier. Oh no, in the I 70s. think that was that was that I've heard about this before. That wasn't just Brighton. That was the whole country. Was it? Or the whole of South East. Oh, because my mum tells the stories of uh, she used to work back in the day in Hannington's when Hannington's was down on sort of like East yep. Street in the corner. She used to work for Estee Lauder. And um, she went out for dinner in the lanes and um, all of these ladybirds suddenly came, came swarming in and they were biting people. It was, pro- wow. it was literally, it was like some, some kind of plague. Yeah, and walking all over them. See, plagues Ooh. in Brighton. I remember when there was a big... Also, look this up. There was, you know, where bees move, and then you, then they then they just they rest, and then there would just be a big blob of bees. Oh yeah. And there was a one just on yeah, yeah, just on Brighton Seafront a few years back. Right. Place to be for plagues. Early life. Uh, my well, I was born in uh, Ashford's William Harvey Hospital, but then uh, basically we I grew up in Folkestone in Kent, right. um, and yeah, you know, normal kind of childhood sort of. And then uh, unfortunately, my dad died when I was eight. Um, so yeah, that was tough. And then basically, I had like educational problems uh, and then I was sort of like I was statemented as dyslexic sorry if this is a bit of a downer but you oh, asked no anyway um, so yeah and it just I just had like problems as a child would you expect usually losing a pair at that age yeah um, and I was lucky enough to be sent to a specialised school for dyslexics which is weird because obviously dyslexia as now is very well understood and uh you know, it's de- dealt with in mainstream schools, but back then that wasn't quite the case. So I had like, I, I had this teacher I hated to this day. I still hate Mr. Blake. You might want to that. <laughs> but he was he was really horrible to me. And I, yeah, and um, but yeah, so I had, uh, yeah, so my, I didn't like enjoy primary. In fact, I hated primary school. But then I got sent to this special school in um, Margate in Kent. So it was like residential. So I'd spend, uh, you know week or two weeks there and then come home for the weekend um so yes that was cool and I was predicted to fail all my GCSEs or pretty much all of them wow but uh I got a double B in science which I couldn't have got any higher because back then they kind of put you into to the in dual, dual award science, yeah. Yeah, yeah but you, yeah. Could, you couldn't get any higher if you were put in for a certain paper yes, yes. yes right yeah, yeah so I could only have got that high so I got B in science B in maths um, and I got D in geography and that's the thing about school we didn't take as many GCSEs of other people but I got D in geography and uh, an F in English <laughs> A in art and that was about it so yeah so that that's only that's not many GCSEs that's still but. pretty good if you were predicted to get like zero yeah yeah that's that's really good going so I was like my mum had put me in to go to the when I came home is to go to do sixth form do GCSE retakes but then when I got my results it was like oh you don't really have to do retakes anymore my mum was really panicking to think like what because I was like oh what they're basically the, the plan was to redo GCSEs because you need obviously GCSEs and uh, yeah, so then I basically, so my mum was panicking, thinking, 
shit, well, I've got to get him to do something because if he doesn't do anything, he's just going to be, I don't know, we'll just get up to something. <laughs> so um, she was desperate to get me onto something, but I hadn't thought about my options because I thought I didn't have any. And then I thought, well, why don't I just go and do art? And then so I revolved on a, in, enrolled on a GMVQ uh, art programme at... Uh, Kent College at Dover but GMB, GMBQs don't exist anymore what's the modern equivalent of GMBQ you're in education oh man I don't know that I only teach at university I don't know what the GMBQ became was it but, like a type of diploma was it it well G, with a GMBQ you could get into university so it's equivalent could, to like a BTEC there was BTEC wasn't yeah, there yeah BTEC well, the GMBQ was um, a vocational qualification wasn't yeah. it yes. basically That's general national vo- vocational yeah. qualification yeah, I don't know. It but, all got messed up because back in the day, I was doing A levels, and now you do AS levels and A levels, and now it's all it's all completely upside down. Oh, the one thing that really winds me up is the fact that they they've they've remade the GCSE grades zero to ten or oh, nine or well, something. Nobody understands it. Yeah. So what's what's the best zero or nine? Uh, I th- I think nine. Everybody. But you know what? I don't know. No, but everybody. <laughs> if you say I got an A, it's like. What, a yeah. is obviously better than B. Yeah. If you say I've got an A star, that is better than an A, and then an A double star, well, you know, it's obvious. Whereas yeah. zero to nine, what's. Yeah, you know. it doesn't make any sense at all. Mm-hmm. Meddling with things that only meddling with. Yes, yeah, so. Um, so you're, you'd done well in your. Were you expected to do well in your art GCSE? I think I was expected. No, I wasn't expected. I don't think they. I wasn't expected to fail that. But it's pretty nice getting an A. Because. It was my only A. Because art, art, artisticness and dyslexia, like I don't really know the, the the finer details of this, but I've heard the the sort of people say that people who struggle with dyslexia generally have that kind of artistic side of the stronger. I, I think that's more kind. Of, I don't know whether that's strictly true because I think if you are dyslexic and you have trouble with normal academic things you're more likely to gravitate to art and spend more time doing art. So then you'll be becoming better at art. Right. Whereas if you took... Yes, if you took someone who's really scientific and then just went, I actually stopped doing that and just basically got them drawing every single day, they'd probably become really good at art as well, you know. Mm. So I don't... I'm not of the... I don't prescribe that thing of dyslexic people who are already creative because I know a lot of dyslexic people and some of them are not creative. Right. (laughs) So. So, So then you went on to college... Yeah, so when I was at college, uh, well, that was the other thing. So, like, I, uh, you know, uh, photography's my thing. And I remember, oh, crumbs, I've forgotten his name. But we had, a, we had a photography tutor called Paul. And I can't remember his second name, but he looked like Penfold from... Danger Mouse. Yes. <laughs> I was once... Because um... he was bald and he had a round head and he was dark-skinned and he looked, and he had little round glasses and he looked like Penfold. Oh, man. I was once barred from a pub for... Um saying the the landlord looked like Penfold and um, I went in I went in the um the pub and there was a big queue and I said something like, Oh, where's Penfold? I and 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 um he was just ducking down and he was just getting something from the fridge on the other side of the bar and as I said it he just kind of oh. popped up and came running round the bar and um yeah was shouting at me and so like, you're not coming back in here ever again Right, okay, and the bouncers actually had to hold him off me. Wow. Mm. Blimey. He's got previous for that. Yeah. Uh, anyway, going back to Penfold. <laughs> yeah. Is 
So my, apart from a brief stint of borrowing my sister's camera on a holiday once and taking a picture of every single bridge that went over the Rhine, I'd never really done anything with photography. Um, and so when you go to art school, you get this list of things you have to buy, like charcoal, pastels, wax pastels, paintbrushes, and then on it, it was like SLR. So the young people who listen to this podcast probably know what a DSLR yeah. is. Well, an SLR is... Is like a camera but without the digital bit. So, um, you know, they said, you know, go to this shop and you can get a second-hand camera. So we went to this camera shop and I got this sort of like, I think it was a Yashica T90, I think. No, maybe it was, yeah. But it was like this very manual camera. And then we went and had our induction to photography and where they just explained everything like aperture and shutter speed and all that. And I just got it. So I shot my first roll of black and white film. And when I developed it, everything was perfectly exposed and I was just like oh that's interesting so my kind of yeah so I just, I've really just got into photography from that point um, was that a bit magic actually taking your first roll of film and then actually developing it yourself did it feel like a big moment oh god yeah because like w- yes definitely because you you know you put the film in that thing um, agitating it yes yeah, agitating it yeah. and then you get it out and then but what I think the real magic bit though is when you're in the dark room and you, you know, the first thing you do is obviously you expose your contact sheet well before that you do that thing where you put different objects on a piece of photographic yeah. paper yeah, yeah. yeah. quite what's that called well that's called but, but anyway so um, yeah so but when you first develop your first photograph and you just see it appear in that tray in the water oh, yeah that's amazing yeah, yeah. And just the stink of it all. Yeah. I need, need to get back into a dark room. Yeah. Because yeah. I've been... Dodging and burning with your hands. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But recently I've been doing... I have actually... Uh, so I did... I've done it... I've been to three parties where I took... I've got this... this barely the penultimate point-and-shoot film camera is the Contax T2. Mm-hmm. Um, Caitlin Jenner's got one that she bangs on about. So there's, the price has skyrocketed. And also the guy who plays Thor, he... he uses it for his Instagram but anyway but I've had mine for years before those fools did <laughs> but what I've been recently doing is when I go to a party or event I'll just like take that camera one roll of black and white film and just write I think I'm going to take 36 pictures tonight uh, they're all going to be different and and it's just amazing like just having that constraint what this set of images look like yeah so I've done that like three times and it's every time it's just like with a flash or yeah with yeah. flash without flash so I did I did like a jungle boat party um, Vibina summer boat party in London that was really good and then I did um, Anthony Burrell's uh, uh, album launch no, no no I did Anthony Burrell's summer party at his house right and then Anthony asked me to photograph his 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 his, his his um, his record launch in London. So yeah, no, no, just I'm just really I'm just really liking those sets of images because because digital shooting digitally is a pain in the ass. When you shoot an event with digital, it's like right, you know, shoot, 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 and then you get back to your computer and it's just like this, yeah. all these images that you have to go through, yeah. and it's just a chore. Whereas if you just shoot black and white and then you just like cheat a bit, get it developed and scanned, and then oh, it's nice. Anyway, I've, I've realised I've skipped ahead now. Yeah, <laughs> I, just just to just to before you go back to where you were or whatever, um, I saw those photos on your website and they're they're really interesting. They look quite grainy and kind of yeah um, yeah. They've got a really nice kind of yeah. old fashioned aesthetic mm. to them. Haven't well, they? Because they, they are yeah, yeah, they look really good. 
quickly just on that point because I think because I, I come from the generation of having like 24 or 36 images to shoot on a roll of film and I used to really think long and hard mm. before I took a, took a shot whereas now we don't have to we yeah. can like say shoot a thousand then sort them out afterwards so when you're working in that capacity do you curate or film so in film so do you do you create as curate as you go or do you tend to let the process happen and then what I suppose what I don't tend out? to let the process happen but to be honest when I've done this the three times I've done this this year I look at them and go I mean some of the pictures aren't that strong but and there are things wrong with them but for the most part it's like yeah these are actually yeah, they're all right. They're, they're of the nice. moment. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Whereas if I do shoot digitally, like I say, a party, it would just be like not the same thing. It's it's really funny because mm. I used to shoot film. I was I was shooting film like you know I just kept at it, and then it got to a point when my daughter was born. I had less time, and then you know, and digital cameras got really good. But for a while, I was still hanging in there with the film. I still like film a lot. Mm. Um, Mm. Sorry. So I, I in in the good. in the chronology in the timeline, where so was this was this college or university? This this was this was college, right? So this was like so I did a GM. So I'd be, I think I did. It's called a GMVQ intermediate, and after you did that, you did the GMVQ advance, which was two more years. Um, so like, and then so we did the first year at Dover, and then they opened up a new a new site in Ashford, and um, basically it was great because everything was brand new. So it was like it was like going to the space age. They like they had they had two Macintosh computers. No like, way! Yeah, yeah. Not only that, they had this um, machine in the dark room that you exposed your paper, and instead of putting it in the tray, so you do the developer, the wash, the fix, the wash hang it up and dry this machine you put it in and then it would just it, internally it would just roll the paper around dunk it into the chemical for just the right amount of time come out into the wash and then I'm pretty sure it would dry it as well and it would come out completely dry what so it's basically this big machine about probably about one and a half metres wide and about you know metre wide amazing machines and I think most dark rooms would probably have them at big, big universities and stuff because it's just a lot cleaner and basically just means all your prints are really perfect. Kind of takes some of the magic out of it, but um, when you're doing like, you know, just going for images, it's a bit of a pain in the ass to do the trade thing. Mm. As magic as it is, it, this machine, yeah, so that was really cool. That, and as I say, they had two Macs with neg scanners. They had a CD burner, <laughs> right? <laughs> and check this out. So if you, so obviously once you've built up a certain amount of work, it's like, mm, you need to burn that off onto a CD now blank CDs from the college shop for thirteen ninety nine, more money than a CD from our price oh <laughs> so like God. it wasn't at that time it wasn't it wasn't like um, economically viable to copy CDs yeah, yeah. zip were you wow. on zip discs I don't think zips existed at that point right. because I because um because so basically, I did my GMVQ, and and and, and so but anyway, my GMVQ is in art and design, so I did all aspects of it, so photography, and I did sculpture, and all that kind of stuff. And then when I came to apply to university, I applied for graphic design and advertising. Woo! Yeah, <laughs> I've got loads of friends who did advertising, and I just really jaded with it now. Like when you just do hardcore advertising they're just like I saw a Facebook post from a friend today and he's just like he used to be in advertising now he's just totally checked out of it and loads of his friends have as well they just yeah. realise you are actually at the 
pinnacle of capitalism and they just thought this is just stupid Um, which is a bit of a weird thing to say I mean I work with agencies and I just don't know it's just that's a whole other debate Mm. but anyway so I I applied to this uh, to Buckinghamshire Children's University College because I thought oh I want to do advertising and they were like I think there was only a few courses in the UK that actually did like advertising as such and then I got there and I just realised I don't want to do advertising so I did the graphics option Mm -hmm. so I actually did graphic design at university never actually done any graphic design as a professional because whilst I was at university um, at the age of 19 I went to the library because someone's like yeah you can go on the internet in the library (laughs) oh that's interesting because up until that point Tele programs like kids TV programs like Going Live and whatever and Tomorrow's World, they'd always mention their web address at the end of the program, and you're just yeah. like, oh, you know, I kind of understand what that is, but I don't know what it is. So when I got to university and they're like, so even though we had two Macs at South Kent College, didn't have the internet. So you know, so basically, so in the library at um, Wick, I'm going to call it Wickham College. It's actually at the time it was Buckinghamshire Children's college and then it was Buckingham Chilton New University it's been it's had so many name changes so I'm just going to refer to it as Wickham okay so anyway so when I went to the library at Wickham you had like a bank of PCs where people were tapping out their essays because at that time in 1998 people didn't have their own laptops or computers because they were so expensive what year were you born Kev 1978 right okay so you're a year older than Claire yeah. and I yeah yeah but I remember the same. I yeah, remember, yeah, yeah. no way you had your own laptop. Are you joking me? Yeah. You had to wait until there was a No, if it was, it would be about five centimetres thick. Yeah, and weigh a tonne. The brick. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it was only portable in the fact that you didn't have to unplug so many <laughs> cables from it as a normal computer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so they, had this, so they had all these PCs where people were doing their essays, but then there was a bank of six special computers upstairs which you could book time on to go on the internet so I thought I'll have a go at this so I went up there went on the internet and like at the time it was like right well you start off at Yahoo and then you just search for some shit and I just remember at the time the um, the, the, the really amazing websites for design and how they worked were David Bowie's website because he was like a real futurist mm. yeah. and um Uncle's website, yep. U-A-N-K-L-E. Yeah, James Lavelle and... And then DJ also Trump. the website of um, the record label. Did Shad- uh, um, what's their record label? Uncle's... DJ Shadow's on it. Um, Ninja Tunes? Yeah. Is it called or Warp, Ninja? is it? Ninja, no, not yeah, Ninja Tunes. Yeah. So their website, yep. they were just amazing. Just amazing for the time. So that got me really interested in, um, in like, interactive design. So I started, um, in my second year, I, I, I taught myself how to build websites. So I remember talking to my tutors, and they, they were talking about this project. I can't remember what it was, but they said, oh, what are you gonna, how are you going to realise this? And I was like, oh, I'm going to make a website. And he's like, all right. Yeah. <laughs> so, and yeah, I made a website. It was very basic, but um, I just went from there. And then you put it live, it, was an, it existed, or...? It, uh, I think, I, when I presented... I can't remember how I presented it whether I actually physically brought an iMac not my own iMac because I had an iMac 
a blueberry type yeah, yeah, just yeah, like, yeah. that was like right here's my project I don't think it was actually on the web right. that came later because that was a whole other thing like yeah. getting something on the web because yeah. what you remember is like 1998 no no, there was. You couldn't easily put something on the internet, and you couldn't watch YouTube to find out how to do it either. Could no, you? no, no, no. You couldn't. I mean, it's really weird to think now. And like, I mean, I remember. I think it was two things I used to watch. There was a comedian called Andrew Milowarkus, who before YouTube was a viral sensation. He has this weird growth defect that makes him appear like a teenager. So, and I didn't realise it at this time, I just thought he was a really funny kid. Right. But he was just making these home movies, and you just think he's this child, but it wasn't. It was like a man, or a young man, making these really funny movies. And he, you know, he did start doing comedy on TV and stuff. And then there was an amazing um, set of four animations called The House of the Bill Cosbys, where this guy who's a really big fan of Bill Cosby's clones him, because he loves Bill Cosby so much, and... Um, it always goes wrong so you have, he had like an R2-D2 Bill Cosby and then he had like a like a dinosaur Bill Cosby so all these different Bill Cosbys and it was absolutely hilarious but Bill Cosby was really litigious and basically he told him to take it all offline interesting enough the guy who made that is now the guy who makes Rick and Morty really? yes oh, so you well, need to check out The House of the Bill Cosbys oh. um so you can see, and that was that was years ago. Wow. Uh, so yeah. Anyway, so yeah, getting on the internet. So that's yes, yeah, so I just got me into the internet, and then basically, it was weird. So all my projects I did were all like interactive based CD ROMs as well, and um, <laughs> but I always weirdly enough, I although photography was sometimes involved in my work, photography was always something very personal to me. So I didn't actually use it in my work that much, bizarrely. Mm. So yeah. So that and that was basically I just did websites at university. So at uni you're doing websites. What happened once you left uni? Well when I left uni i um <clears throat> i went home for a bit most of my friends went to london before they even have a job which i thought was a really weird thing to do because it's just like i mean obviously it, you know it helps to be in london to find a job in london but at the same time you're paying not relative to now but you're paying like loads of rent i just thought fucking i'm really sorry, sorry. <laughs> i'm really tired so I, and my mum had just she was just renting a flat like literally on the beach um in uh, it's called Sandcroft but it's actually basically you know like the Dinchurch and Hive Romney Railway yeah so the the Romney station where they got the model railway upstairs basically you, you're there if you just basically go down the long road to seafront that's literally where her flat was it was oh, amazing wow. yeah so she sold her house and she rented this flat for a bit while she looked for another home and so I stayed with her for about two months and I basically did a few freelance web projects from her home and a lot I remember seeing to remember watching a lot of Stargate SG1 oh I love that <laughs> yeah that was awesome yeah it was really good so I was watching that because that was from that was on, on during the daytime on channel 4 <laughs> so yeah but then also obviously we could swim every day um, which was good so that was nice uh, and then Anthony Burrell who I met at because uh, he did visiting lecturing at, uni, at our uni <clears throat> 
basically, he put my name forward to someone called Philip Hunt at a company called AKA Pizzazz, which is now called Studio AKA. And they were looking for a web developer because they thought, oh, you know, the internet's going to be a big thing. We need a web developer. So, um, yeah, so I, so basically, and that was the funny thing, because back then, because I could build websites, when I came out of university, I had three job offers, all of which were really boring. So I turned them all down. But then suddenly this animation studio got hold of me. Like, I got this email. I can't remember whether Anthony emailed me or they emailed me. I think they emailed me and said, oh, you know, we're looking for a web developer do you want to, and I know you kind of like new and fresh, do you want to come to have an interview? And I looked them up online and I was like, this, this, this is amazing. Because <laughs> at the time, in the 90s, they just, the, the biggest thing, what they really know, they did loads of orange ads. So I don't know whether you remember the animated orange adverts from the from the 90s, but that yeah. was them. Wow. And, um, and I was just like, whoa there. So yeah, so I went to work for them. We did some like all the, I, I looked after their website, but I also, and, and that was when looking after websites was difficult. Just to give you an idea. If you put a video on your website now, you put it on video, Vimeo, yeah. you get the embed code. Yeah. You open up your WordPress editor, paste it in, boom, done. Back then, it's like, right, depending on what is in the video, like, is it live action? Is it animation? Does it look like a cartoon? Is it CG? Depends on how you compressed it, because if you didn't compress it in the right way, it looked like crap. So I would, like, use this program called Media Cleaner Pro to basically try and get their videos to look the best they could. Bearing in mind, they're only about that big, like, sort of, yeah. like you know tiny on the screen so yeah that was a that was yeah so whenever they had a new job then I'd be like sort of tweaking all the different versions and just to make it look nice uh, but then we did all these kind of like weird interactive experiments which was really cool um, yeah and then um, but funny enough before I even started work there I I used to use this camera called a Lomo LCA which was like this little Russian camera that uh, was really easy to use. So the idea was developed in, I think, 1984, and the idea that they in, in Soviet Russia they wanted to produce a camera that the average person could use. It was like a camera for the people. It was a very noble idea. What they actually did was copied a Japanese camera called the Casino CX-2, but they copied it with their own little quirks, and it produced these really beautiful images. So I was using that camera throughout college, and I had a friend who went to an interview of a guy who actually imported those cameras to the UK and she told him about me and he said oh you know just um yeah get in, get in touch so I sort of got in touch with him he said oh yeah we have like little gallery openings and all this kind of stuff and events and he said we're having this little photography competition why don't you come along so this photography competition was like no other instead of you submitting a print or whatever it's like no no we'll give you three rolls of film and then <clears throat> we'll give you a list of 100 things to photograph and come back in three hours and we'll see how you did. Wow. So he did that with all these people and they were amazing because they had this deal going with Snappy Snaps. They processed all the images and then they would like go through and sort of like work out, you know, who did the best. And then the next day, it was called like a freestyle day. So it was like three days. And again, we got given three rolls of film, sent off into the Notting Hill Carnival and... uh, so yeah, so I shot all these pictures and then and then again they looked at it and saw who was the best. And then so basically out of the sort of 50 or 80 people who did this, they went, right, you 10 are the top. You can now enter the actual Olympic event bit. And so um, the day after being at the... So this is after two days of running around taking photographs at Notting Hill Carnival and all this kind of stuff. Wow. 
we were in Hoxton Square and we had these really silly things to do. Like uh, there was one event called Wellington Wellington Boot Clay Pigeon Shooting. And the idea so is not just about your artistic skill as a photographer. It was about... Um, that's... Um, it wasn't about your artistic skill as a photographer. It was about uh, how agile you were with a camera. So what they would do is they'd throw a welly boot into the sky. You'd have to take a picture of it. And as soon as you took your picture, they'd throw another one. So you'd have to wind it on and take another picture. So clay pigeon oh, shooting. Yeah. With, with there was another, there was another event called, um, I can't, you know in the Wild West where you quick draw? Yes. It's called a Lomo quick draw. Yeah. So in this event, you had to pull, a, you had to pull the, you had to pick the Lomo off the ground, wind it on, take a picture of your poem before he took a picture of you. So I had this system going on where I'd put it up and I'd, rub it on my leg to roll the thing round then I <laughs> and um yeah so I and I um I uh won I won yeah. no I didn't no I didn't no I, didn't, no, no, I came joint I came joint first with another guy and so in typical kind of Lomo slapdash fashion we were in a cafe called Bar Kicks and they're like okay we'll decide this on um, a game of uh, table football, which I'm rubbish at. So I came second, unfortunately. Oh. But the, it didn't matter because the first and second place winners got sent to Japan to compete in the world finals. Wow. Now, interesting enough, what happened was is, is Lomography, they were running these events all around the world, but they left it up to the people in different countries how they would run it. And Lomography, the main head office Lomography, saw how bonkers the London event was and said to the guy running it, Fabian, he said, right, you are going to run the Japan event. So luckily, when we got to Japan, we'd already done all this. So, um, and, and this was the funny thing as well. So I got to my job and I was like, oh yeah, can I, I know I've only been here a few, a little while, but can I, can I have 10 days off to go to Japan because I've won this thing? And they're like... Yeah, we like to uh, we like to support people's creative endeavours and that, but obviously you've only been here a few weeks. You can't have any holiday time, so you're welcome to go, but it'll be unpaid. I'm like, yeah, fair enough. Um, so yeah, so I went to Japan, and it was basically the same thing again. So 101 things to shoot on the first day, trying to find a way to around Japan. The next day was a freestyle day, but we had we started at three o'clock in the morning at the um, Tokyo Fish Market. Oh, and then weird. and then we had to finish at three o'clock in the afternoon. So like, I, with another guy, we got on a train and I, I've said, look, I've heard about this massive uh, swimming pool complex. Let's go there. And so we got on a bullet train because we had like all day. <laughs> and we went to this thing and yeah, and I took all these amazing pictures in there and they came back. And um, and then again, we had the Olympic events and yeah, and I came second in the world. Oh, that's that, insane. So that's did, cool. did the person who won the won the first one win the second one? No. no. So you beat him. Yes. Um, and yeah, so I made some brilliant friends of that. But what that taught me about photography is not to take it too seriously. So I've kind of um, took that away with me. So like, so yes, yeah, so I was working as a sort of web developer, but then I was also doing like photography. And I was getting little photography jobs on the side. Um, so yeah, and then eventually after about two and a half years, I left uh, Studio AKA to do a freelance job with a friend of mine who also left. 
So Grant Orchard, he left Studio AKA to do like a Channel 4 mesh project and I did the interactive side of it mm -hmm. called Welcome to Glowingly. Interestingly enough, Matt Lucas did all the voices in that. Uh -huh. So yeah, it's quite like, I just went to the voice recording, not because I needed to, just because I thought I've never been to a voice record before. And I just, and Matt Lucas was just amazing. He just like, um, Grant said, yeah, so basically we've got this angry crowd of people who have come to Lynch Pedo. Um, can you just do uh, a whole set of voices and we'll just like layer them on and, like, and he just like reamed off all these really angry voices yeah. for this crowd um, interest, Grant went back to Studio AK and he's now developed a television show called Hey Dougie wow. Hey Dougie yeah, I can do all the voices Lovely. Hey Dougie I always introduce that to my, my sister uh, and I'm particularly in love with <coughs> rabbits the sort of the rabbits who are human who are yeah. another brownie man and I'm saying to I, well, it's I, wonderful hey, I can you. introduce you maybe you can do some voices um, <laughs> and then yeah but when then what so shortly after I did that Channel 4 thing I split up with my girlfriend no actually before that I split up with my girlfriend and I just thought well I don't have a job in London I'm freelance and I don't have a girlfriend I don't need to be here so then I moved to Brighton wow why Brighton? Because I had friends in Brighton and I would visit them all the time and I just loved it. Mm. I really, really liked it. And I suppose because you sort of grew up by the sea, yeah. it probably had a similar sort of... Well, yeah, because I grew up in Folkestone and I... So basically I only spent... I've only spent five and a half years of my life inland mm. because I was in Folkestone, Margate, then I went to Wickham, London, and then, yeah, came back. Yeah. Oh. I mean, I... Grew up in Brighton, lived in Brighton, went to university in Brighton, went away for about a year. And I found that I really struggled being inland for too long because I mm. need to have that sea and the idea of that there's nothing over there. Yeah. Like, there's no fence almost. Being further inland, it just starts to freak yeah, me out. Yeah, well, that's, that's what I like about a bit seaside towns is there's, there's a clear boundary of where the city ends mm. and you've got this massive open space that just goes for the whole length of the city. Yeah. Whereas if you don't have a seaside, it's like you have the town centre and then they kind of sprawl. You may have parks and stuff, but it's just... Yeah. Nah, it's not right. No, it's not the same. Where did you grow up? Manchester. There's Manchester. a river in Manchester, though. There is a river, yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't swim in it. So you moved to Brighton, settled in, what next? Um, as a nudie freelance person, I had a lot of time on my hands. So um, I was doing a lot of swimming by myself and I had an incident where I got into a bit of a rough sea and I had trouble getting out. And I was like, fuck me. So I was in the sea and I was like, the waves were crashing and I was getting dragged back and I was like, I can't get out. This is really bad. I'm getting cold. It was not fun. How long did it last for? Uh, probably not as long as I thought it did yeah. but it wasn't that fun. panic yeah. yeah. I'm so, guessing you're probably a very strong swimmer having swum a lot you were you talking about swimming I am now yeah. not back then because I only just moved to Brighton in fact I'm the fittest now that I've ever been in my life back then I was a right chubby little chopster because I was like you know because I don't drink now Like, but then I was like you know I was drinking like loads so I, that, I wasn't very healthy mm. at all so I was like well that was a bit scary and then <coughs> My mate had a book called The Cheeky Guide to Brighton 
which was written by David Cromwell. David Cromwell, Cromwell. Yes. yeah, I did anyway. the Catalyst Club from last week. Yes, so in there, there was a little bit about Brighton Swimming Club, just a little thing about, oh, you know, um, people swim from this place, whatever. So I Googled it, looked up the thing, and I, I, and I emailed the club and said, oh, um, yeah, I saw you in the Cheeky Fire to Brighton, and I, was, I wrote this really kind of cheeky, like, kind of email, and they... And they, I just didn't get a reply back, so oh, that's all very good. So, anyway, so then I went down to the club and found these two World War II veterans swimming from the beach. Uh, they go at 10 o'clock every day. Wow. So I joined the club, I started going with them. And then I discovered there was a set of people who swam at 7.30 in the morning. So I was like, these guys were really cool. Like one built Lancasters and the other one, no, one built Spitfires in Bristol and the other guy was a Lancaster pilot. Oh, wow. Yeah, exactly. They had some stories. Um, but... It was a bit slow-paced. So, and also then I discovered there was a group of other people who swam at 7.30 in the morning. So I started to join them for their swims. And eventually, what we call the weekend lot, uh, I met some of the people who were on the committee of the swimming club. And I said, yeah, did you ever get my email? And he goes, oh, oh yeah, I thought that was a joke. So I ignored it. <laughs> but I started, docu- I started photographing Brighton Swimming Club and um, and yes, yeah, so I just sort of like, and this was before Facebook and Flickr. And so what I would do is I'd fo- make all these photographs and then I'd have like a best of Muji photo album that I would carry around and show to people. Um, and that's weird to think, you know, that's, yeah. yeah. But then I started putting them on Flickr and then every so often I'd email people in the swim club, go, oh, I've just put some new photographs from swim club on Flickr. And there was a woman there called Lindy Dunlop who was a sub-editor at Rotavision. So she emailed me, or she contacted me and said, oh yeah, so do do you want to maybe write um, a treatment for a photography book, like a how-to photography book? And I'm like, oh fucking hell, I'm dyslexic. The thing is, I'm dyslexic. I hadn't really written anything since my dissertation, which I hated doing. Difference is, when you write in a book and it's all, you don't have to do all that citation stuff. Mm. And you have a sub-editor. Yeah. Amazing. And also, I had like, a really good friend called Evo, who was the, speaking at that event we just spoke about. Yeah. She did a lot of proofreading for me as well, before I even sent it to them. So anyway, I wrote this, what's called a blad for a book, which is a 16-page sample. And I got paid to do it. Nothing ever happened. And then, weirdly, about 18 months later, they're like, oh, yeah, we redesigned it, we renamed it, and now we've got like a co-publishing deal with another, oh God, I can't remember what it's called now. This, anyway, big publishing company in America. So I thought, wow, so I've got to write a book. So I wrote this book called Hot Shots, which is like this little bite-sized photography book. And it did like bonkersly well. Like it was like, Rotavision told me it's one of their best-selling books ever. Wow. Yeah, no, and, and, they, and they showed me the sales figures, and it was like in the hundreds of thousands, and they translated it into about 15 different languages. Oh, that's incredible. Yeah, no, it is incredible. Unfortunately, I got paid a one-off fee for it. <laughs> yeah, and at the time, I before, because I, I got to meet Martin Parr, I got to know Martin Parr a bit, so I actually emailed him and said, look, this is what they've offered me, is that good? And he goes, for a first book deal, that's really good. Because so you never know, do you? Yeah, exactly, so if Martin Parr says so, yeah. anyway, yeah. later on, <laughs> I saw Martin and he says, oh, how's the book doing, Kevin? And I went, yeah, it's doing really well. And I told him the sales figures and he was like, oh. Because like, the thing is, he was coming from the world of like pure photography book. This is different. Uh, this is like a how-to. Coffee table book. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, but anyway, but that was good because that obviously grew my audience and I ended up doing two more books for them. So, How long does it take to put a book together? 
it was I think the first book I did was only 6,000 words so that's not a lot so I think if you look at it because what it is is it's like a little bit of text like the first book was very bite-sized so it's like here's a picture and then here's a bit of text about it with like a few tips yeah. so you know and then at the back I did like a chapter on different things like you know because you have to really in a photography book about aperture and all this kind of stuff but it begins with like here's the read and that's the thing it's very approachable because straight away you're like oh that's interesting and then at the back you've got all this kind of info in the back which didn't actually make up that much mm. then the next book I did is Rotavision had an idea for um, they wanted because 365 was a big thing people doing 365 projects and they're like yeah what we want you to do is we're going to do a bigger book 365 photography, photographic project ideas in 40,000 words. So I just, in the meeting, this is what's weird about them, I just worked, worked out and went, so that means, I think it was like 80 words per project. I said, you can't say anything in 80 words. That's stupid. Yeah. Let's do 52 projects. So we did, and what I did with that book is I, um, is then I, I, I did half of it myself. There was other stuff I found really interesting, like light painting, and this is amazing not drone photography but aerial photography which i didn't do so i contacted all these people that i really respect on Flickr and said look if i give you this amount of money do you want to write this segment so it made the book at best it could possibly be Fab. interestingly the aerial photography bit is called kite photography what this guy does he had like a little you could get certain compact digital cameras if you held the shutter button down they just keep on taking pictures and he would just put it hoist it under a kite and he would get aerial oh photographs like that this was way before drones yeah and there was a thing about self-portraiture which now if you had it in a book you call it selfies so yeah really funny mm. Mm. and so that's your was that your second book or your yeah yeah and you've done another one after that have you? another book that was a bit of a bane it was it was about toy cameras so you know like the stereotypical plastic cameras yeah so I had to do like, and it, I think it was about 40 plastic cameras. Now obviously you have to get 40, a set of 40 decent pictures from your camera, which was easier said than done. Even though I I was in Los Angeles anyway for something. So I shot loads of stuff on as an A in really good light. And there's no good trying to do it on a gray day with some of these cameras. So then I went to Barcelona as well and did a load of stuff, but it was just so difficult getting decent images. It was really stressful mm. doing that book. So yeah, did enough fun doing the plastic cameras book. And I actually also used images from other people as well. Right. But yeah, I enjoyed the first two books way more. Would you want to do another one? Um, possibly, yeah, I think so. Yeah. It depends on the situation of it. Yeah. yeah, you've not got anything rumbling around your head like, oh, I'd no. like to do this. To be honest, if I'm going to be honest, I'm a bit bitter about it because of the amount of money they made compared to what I made. All right, yeah. So, and I, and I remember when I, I saw Lawrence Ziegler give a talk once at, when I was teaching at Buckinghamshire Children's University, sorry, Wickham College. <laughs> uh, I, it was great because I was doing like a one day teaching thing and then Nigel Robinson came and said, yeah, we got Lawrence Ziegler's giving a lecture, so uh, can I take your students and you can come along and watch this talk? I'm like, this is brilliant. I'm getting paid to go to a lecture. So we watched Lawrence and he started off his talk about this book he'd done on illustration and then just basically like slagged off Rotavision like the whole way through because saying how like crap they were and it was just like whoa there but then I kind of got to know that that said the creative people at Rotovision they're wonderful people it's yeah. just the it's just the uh, the suits yeah, yeah the money men yeah yeah and ladies obviously yeah. it was a Generally money lady party. yeah
Brighton-wise, you know, you're really, really well known. I know a lot of the images that you've done that have been very sort of Brighton-centric and looking at Brighton in different ways. So uh, one of the things we've had in Brighton, which is controversial, is the i360. Uh, and I know that you did quite a lot of work with the i360. I did, yeah. Um, so obviously, I mean, everybody in Brighton heard of the i360. And then I got an email from Mark Barfield's Architects saying, oh, yeah, we're looking for a Brighton-based photographer. Well, I think they were looking for a couple of photographers and to say they wanted to document the build because they had certain problems with image rights with, uh, from when they built the London Eye. And so they said, well, you know, we want to be able to, we want to work with a photographer where we have the rights to use the images in perpetuity. And I was kind of fine with that because the, the pay was really good. So it was fine. And, so, and I had done really well out of it. So that's absolutely no problem. But I was just like, this is, the, I mean, but the project really interested me. So I went up for the interview and I think I'm quite relaxed in interviews because like, I never go in there thinking, oh, if I, um, I don't want to screw this up. Because I think if I don't get it, I don't get it. Yeah. You know, so it's just like very like I am now. And one of the things they said in it was in the, in the, um, in the, in the, before the interview was like, yeah, if you've had any experience with construction or long-term time, time lapse, please be able to bring that with you. So I was showing all my, my images that I'd done, none of it construction-based, but, you know, it's transferable. And then they said, oh, and uh, I've had a little bit of experience with construction uh, time lapse. And I showed them this time lapse um, I made of me building a sandcastle with my daughter <laughs> on a Cornwall beach. It was a big sandcastle, um, but yeah, so, and, and that made them chuckle. And they, yeah, so that, and they, they were really nice. And then, yeah, I got, I got the job along with another photographer. And um, yeah, and it just went from there. So I set up a time lapse. So if you go to the i360 and you, where you're sitting in the, the waiting room before you board, there's like a TV with a documentary on it. And then it shows, a t uh, it's a six minute time lapse of two and a half years of construction. But what I loved about that job is it really, pushed me to my limits because before I did it I was afraid of heights they <laughs> asked me whether I was and I said I wasn't obviously, <laughs> yeah. but, I, but for instance like years ago I went to a climbing wall in Shoreham with some friends of mine uh, and I, I climbed to the top of this wall and when it came to the bit of leaning backwards I just couldn't do it I froze at the top and like I just yeah and heights had always freaked me out uh, and then, but then I had to like get over it because of you know going up on there's things called man riders where they pick you up in cranes and then you can take photographs of the whole construction site being hoisted up and it's kind of swaying around. And then I actually had to climb the inside of the i360, which the is like yeah, which is like an uninterrupted ladder, vertical ladder. That was that was, and then and then the pinnacle of the now I know I've overcome my heights is when we they tested out the abseil system because you can now do i360 abseils. And I remember I just like they opened up the doors at the top, it's 138 meters. And I, I mean, I was harnessed on, but I literally walked right up to the edge and just leaned right over just to have a look. Um, so, yeah, so it's really it's killed my you've cured yourself, yeah, yeah. But it's really great. I, I need to do something with the image. I mean, I've got like I've only stupidly on my website, I realized the other day, I've got uh, the photographs of the construction only up until where they put the pod together. And I need to put a portfolio of images in there from actual the the, the actual i360 finished because I've got loads of really nice landscape photographs with it. Mm. So it's one of those things that you have such a big project that you I deliver all the images to them and they use them and then I don't actually do anything with them myself, which yeah. I need to do. Yeah. So yeah. yeah, but yeah, so that was yeah really exciting to work with them. I know it's controversial 
Um, I still like it. And the thing is, that it, you know, it's, it sparked the council on to regenerate that area around it, which Completely was agreed. a dump before. Yeah. So there's all those new businesses in there, including the Brighton Photography Gallery run by Finn Hobson. Yeah, yeah. who's awesome. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so, you know, so he employs people. So you think of like the, the trickle on effects and the amount of people that the i360 employ themselves, the company services they use. For the, so I think for the general economy, it is very good. I think that the council will get their money back at the moment because they get the money. The council's still getting, as far as I understand, still getting their money. They're just not getting the the interest they were meant to get. So it's. Yeah. Yeah. I think when they sort of generating or comparing it to other landmarks, maybe elsewhere in the country that maybe have a much much bigger footfall. But yeah, but yeah, I, mean, I completely agree with you. That area had been forgotten for years and years and years yeah. and years. Yeah. And the other thing is, Brighton is a city of these mad architectural kind of things like the, yeah, hello, the, the pavilion yeah the pavilion and that that, that Madeira Drive yeah, yeah that was the, bonkers the, yeah. the, the train that ran through the sea oh the, the daddy long legs yeah, yeah you yeah. know insane idea of course it's going to silt up but they still built it again yeah. we go I think it lasted months yeah. yeah yeah. and the tracks are still in there yeah yeah that was awesome thanks ever so much for coming in Kev thank you yeah. very much thank you for having me yeah Kev's got to rush off now to on your, on your bike to Argos there's the Brighton Etsy fair tomorrow morning and my wife doesn't have and it, uh, PayPal reader, so I'll go yeah. was in a in a bit of a rush to uh, to leave because n- not because of anything we said, but um, yeah, he just needed to get. Get, um, he had a task to he do. Did. He before, did. Like, before. like everything, and like everything, well, those who have done events know that everything goes completely peaked on. Actually, I'll tell you something else interesting in a second. Um, but yeah, so um, so uh, Kev's wife um, is part of the Brighton Etsy group. Um, she, I can't remember exactly her name. Oh, I'll have to look it up. Um, she goes under the name Rock Cakes. Rock does Cakes, she? that's yes. it, yes. Um, really lovely shark ring I've been coveting for quite a long time. Right. Uh, so, yes, yeah, so the Brighton Etsy, obviously those of you who know Etsy, know it's lots of a collection of makers and there's different groups in different cities that sort of collaborate together. And Brighton, I'm surprised, we've got a really, really good bunch of people that come under the Brighton Etsy group, really sort of proactive and full of energy. Uh, and it's their Christmas fair tomorrow, so that's December the 1st. It's at the Dome in Brighton, um, open all day. And... It, it, honestly, it's my go-to place for gifts for people. You're supporting local makers, local craftspeople, local designers, um, and the design is well-considered and it's awesome. So, yeah, good on Kev for zooming over, because if you don't have a PayPal or any sort of card reader at these sort of events, it's not a good thing. Pete Tong, going back to my Pete Tong point, there was something on the other day about how Pete Tong said, stop blaming me when everything goes wrong. Because you know you say it's all gone Pete yeah. Tong. He's all gone wrong. He's, he's had enough of that and now, he a, has he? Yeah, he got a bit, he got a bit knocked about that, saying, "You know, don't blame me when everything just goes rubbish." <laughs> I think I've heard him saying it himself. Yeah, own it. Yeah. Bless him. Anyway, so that was so Kev. You know, fantastic chat with Kev. I learned loads of stuff that I didn't yeah, know done, even though I've known him for years. And it, it's funny because. Um, I, I've always known him as a photographer, Lomo Kev, and Lomo and, Kev, yeah. and and yeah, it's interesting to to kind of realise that that's part of his creative output. But he he is um, making websites and building yeah. websites and things as well. Yeah. Uh, that's 
I th- and he I, balances the two. I first knew him as Lobo Kev because I had, um, or I've got an LCA um, that I bought on eBay many, 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 many years ago. And I loved it. And I thought I was going to get one of the new release when Lomography first started to get bigger and it was being remade. Um, and when this camera turned up, it was actually one of the original Russian ones with a Russian um, instruction manual to it. So I was well happy, and I used to shoot loads on my LCA, and then I freaking well dropped it, didn't I, when I went to France for a day. Right. Um, and it pranged a little bit inside, and I took it to one of the events that, that Kev was talking about. Again, we're talking about, oh man, like 2009 or something insane. Um, and he, he looked at it and gave me a couple of pointers of people who'd be able to fix it, yeah. which was great, and I still love it. I bought one in 1999 or 2000. Did you? Yeah, and had um, a colour splash um, flash, which was oh, a, wow. a, fl- a, little, a little flash which went on a plastic, it was only cheap plastic thing, but it had like um, a turner and you turn the, the dial and it put different coloured um, film over the front of the flash so you could have yeah. all different colours because the the camera in in daylight and on a clear day when the sky was really blue you'd get amazing shots but oh, in, in Manchester like Manchester. It, it wasn't it wasn't always as uh, as kind of sunshine you know I, I took it on holiday and had some amazing photographs but then yeah it was it was just kind of it was a bit hard to use so I bought this this colour splash thing that that just boosted everything with like red or um and i had it for a bit and then when um when digital photography came came about i i sold it to someone i think i made a profit on it but i think they've gone up even more because they they kind of ran out of they stopped making them or whatever but i I remember getting the getting it and it came with a little book and it was like um shoot from the hip you know the the low the lomo guide and Yeah. yeah and and the colors the kind of super saturated colours and the vignetting yeah the vignetting yeah it's a lovely little camera I love mine it was kind of in that that style was really in fashion in the early noughties and I I remember talking to um, talking to someone who'd been a photographer for a long time and 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 saying oh yeah I've got this camera and it does this like lovely bright poppy colours and it's a bit vignette and stuff and he's like oh that's the sign of a bad camera you don't want vignette you want a clear you know. yeah. and, but it was it was just an aesthetic which yeah. kind of I, I don't know it's kind of I think it's moved on a little bit now hasn't I it think so. that, yeah. but then if you think about it I mean that's the sort of the point isn't it it was relatively low priced even though probably when you bought yours and when I bought mine they weren't cheap cameras not no I think mine was £100 yeah I think mine was about 100 quid. yeah um, and I was really chuffed when I got like an original Russian one. So yeah. was one of the mine was ones. mine had the Russian instructions yeah. as well. Um, and but I think that's the thing, isn't it? That nowadays we can have the incredible precision, like Kev was saying, is that we are able to edit our digital photos to within an inch of their life, so they can be completely and utterly perfect. We discard everything else. We discard all the eclectic and the incidental stuff that happens. Um, but then on the flip side of that, you do have stuff like lomography um, and other sort of lower tech, hand-built, more analogy things. Um, and how you've, you know, sort of need both sides of the coin. They both of them have their benefits. Very much like vinyl, it's got a huge comeback, even though uh, some people think the quality of vinyl is far better um, than that of digital music. Of course, you've got all that sort of slight or possible graininess and because it is a physical thing that's being used yeah I think there's sort of you sort of need both sides 
I was listening to a podcast this morning um, about a woman who does radical turntablism and, and turntablism is normally like scratching and stuff, but she actually... Um, that sounds like an amazing porn name. <laughs> radical turntablism. <laughs> she, um, she does things like um, smashing records to bits, placing them on the platter and then playing it. Does that work? It does. It makes, it makes a sound or... Um, she'll get a 12-inch record and then put a 9-inch record on top of it and play the 12-inch record and then the needle gets up to the the, the, the smaller record yeah. and then it won't go any further so it just keeps on playing a, a circle of stuff and then she like builds up quite a few of these Does that not wear a groove? I'm sure it wrecks the record, yeah, yeah but that, that's that's the point and she yeah. has she's developed these or she's got this needle with a double needle so that it can p- play two grooves at the same time and yeah she just like really kind of experimenting what you can do with a, a, a traditional vinyl. And is she um, an artist or a musician or well she does work artist? she does workshops with okay. people and they have to smash they, they have to start by smashing a record and she was saying it's like really hard for people to kind of especially people who are like you know audiophiles or vinyl yeah. vinyl lovers to kind of break one but once they do and they and get into on it the material it could actually be quite hard to smash it as well yeah mm. hello materials geek <laughs> <laughs> interesting so what have you got planned for the weekend? Are you going to that Etsy? I am. So tomorrow's going to be a busy one, actually. So I've got the Brighton Etsy fair I'm going to uh, in the morning. Um, I think, didn't your email... Mark gets an email to t- telling him if it's going to rain or not. Did it say it was going to rain tomorrow morning? It said it was going to rain tomorrow okay, morning. Okay, so, yeah, so it's a nice... Low of seven, thing. high of 13 for anyone who's interested. <laughs> oh, and, and, is, and is listening to this, like, as soon as it... As it soon right. as it's released. Yeah. And it's going to be in Brighton. On your Friday night. <laughs> um, there will be tea and there will be cake. I will be having that. And then I'm... Also going to the Emmaus Brighton and Hove. It's their Christmas fair tomorrow as well. And are you so, doing a beach clean as well? Sunday morning, I'm leading a beach clean, which is for the Friends of Hove Lagoon uh, under my Service Against Sewage capacity, or with my sewage, Service Against Sewage capacity. Uh, and then in amongst all of that, there will be training and there will be boatyard stuff as usual. So yeah, bit of a busy one. How about you? Um, I'm probably going to get a Christmas tree over the weekend yeah I mean it's a little early but um, it's 1st of December tomorrow yeah yeah it is so and we'll be spending some of Christmas with family so um, might not be at home for all the time so you know there's no point having one for just a a couple of weeks or whatever so we declared it Christmas did we not we did we've got we've got trees in fact they've been up for a for a week haven't did we, we talk trees? about it last week I can't remember I think we did yeah about we talked about cleaning the windows and oh, stuff, indeed didn't we, we? Did. Yeah. yeah indeed we did so I'm going to do that and then I was considering um maybe taking my little boy up to London for a day or doing something like that but what, museums possibly yeah but maybe not I don't know it might be quite busy in 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 London and depends if it's going to rain yeah the, the, well <laughs> the, the shop, shopping will be busy and getting around will be busy won't oh, it in London true. but yeah. the, it, like I wouldn't I don't know but then next week I noticed that the National Lottery are doing a thing where you can get in loads of galleries for free in London with a with a National Lottery ticket so oh okay um, 
yeah, maybe I'll do it then. I've not fully decided. Culture in exchange but, for gambling. Yeah. <laughs> I'll talk to the other half. But but at least with lottery tickets, some of the money goes to Indeed. fund culture. Yeah, the big lottery fund sport. does fund a lot. And hey, yeah. you might even win some money and then you can do even mortgage it. Yeah. Or bad. Or, or, or well. It's up to you. <laughs> I'd rather have good shit than bad shit. Yeah. <laughs> Anything else to say? Um I read, I read an article this morning talking of good shit and bad shit. Yeah. I read an article this morning about um, um, a, a, a stool that people um, put their feet on while they go to the toilet. And apparently we've all been going to the toilet wrong because... Yes, yeah, so your body position would be better. Yeah, your knees need to be up high when you're yeah. going for a poo. And, yeah, um, yeah that's what this article... It's, it's because the alignment yeah. of, of all of your lower intestine is right. better when you've got your knees up. And yeah. A, yeah, apparently you can evacuate, evacuate yourself much better if... Uh, the gift for somebody you don't know what to get yeah. for Christmas, a, a poo, poo stool. stool. Yeah. Or a stool a stool. 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 <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh dear, comedy legends, yeah. here we are. <laughs> so I think that's it. It is. End on the bum note. Thank you for listening. Have a lovely weekend. Yeah. Or See whenever you're today. listening to it, yeah. Yeah. Eat mince pies, people. Advent calendars ahoy. See you later. See you later.